And now for a segment called Just Something I've Noticed, brought to you by our friends at Motel 6. Just Something I've Noticed. There's a lot more yawning these days. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And the bad thing about yawning, it's contagious. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I do know that's true. You see somebody else yawn, all of a sudden, you got to yawn. Do you know what helps to curtail the yawning? How about a great night's rest at Motel 6? Book online at motel6.com. Use the code CPREDEYE to get 15% off your stay at Motel 6 or Studio 6. With almost 1,500 locations across the country, there's almost always a Motel 6 or Studio 6 nearby. And truck parking is available at most locations. Enjoy a clean, comfortable room at a price you will love when you use the code CP Red Eye. That's the letters CP Red Eye, all one word, for 15% off your stay at Motel 6 and help curtail the yawning. That's just something I've noticed. Brought to you by Motel 6. Now, it's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show. This is Red Eye Radio. Hello and welcome. He is Gary McNamara. I'm Eric Harley. As we move into a Friday, it's not just any Friday, folks. (laughs) It is St. Patrick's Day. And I don't want to hear any... Stereotypes about we Irish people, all right? Yeah. No, we won't be talking about how you all uh, drink and fight. No. I'd say we all. No no stereotype. Yeah, I'm Scotch-Irish. Well, I'm as close as you can get to 100% Irish. Well, we stopped off at the other island to get angry. And then we came (laughs) over. (laughs) We got <laughs> we we have a great sober show. We are sober uh, today here for this uh, Saint uh, Patrick's Day. So much to talk about coming up here in a little bit. Uh, we found out who one of the secret Bidens uh, uh, is, but there's another now mysterious. Well, not secret, mysterious. Uh, but there's a now a second mysterious. According, Biden. according to the New York Post, there's a another mysterious Biden. So we'll get to that. Uh, uh, coming up, Russia and the American drone, the banking system. Oh, in fact, uh, speaking about the banking system, the Treasury Secretary spoke uh, before the Senate yesterday. The president knows many people on Social Security. Then why doesn't the president care? He cares very deeply. Then where, where is his plan? He, he stands ready. To work with that's a lie. Because of- okay, that's and I'm sorry that oh, it was working perfectly before, and I'm mm-hmm. having problems with my computer as mm-hmm. I do all the time. And so, mm-hmm. but uh, that's Senator Bill Cassidy uh, saying, "Why doesn't the president care about Social Security? He cares deeply. You know, where's his plan? He stands ready to work uh, with uh, Congress." And he said, "That's a lie. Yeah. We have requested yeah. over and over again to get this president to meet with us on Social Security, yep. and he refuses right. to do so." We'll, we'll get to all that, but you know, I was thinking about the banking system, and we had, you know, it was uh, interesting because it sort of caught me off a little bit off guard because we had storms and hail that uh, some mo- monster hail that moved through the area yesterday. So I got to sleep probably right around uh, six o'clock and and slept great. But when I woke up. I had a, a message from one of my lifelong friends, and I've talked about him before, Jerry. I visit him every year in uh, in uh, in Tampa, and he left me a message, and it was just a minute long. All right, it was just a minute message long. 
he left me in it uh, on on a social media thing. So I think I don't. It was exactly a minute, so I don't know if that's the limit that he can leave on it. And he didn't get into specifics, but it just it made me think uh, because he has worked. I I met him uh, working at a bank when we were both eighteen, and I realized that uh, you know he is still in he's still in banking today, and works for a smaller regional bank now but he's been in the banking industry for 50 years oh Mm. next year next year will be half a century in the banking industry and he called me up and he just said you know i'm 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 angry but he it's it sounded more like being frustrated with the sense of of hopelessness that you know you're angry about the situation but he just you know he he just said to me he said the um and i'll be paraphrasing here but he said I work for such a great regional smaller bank, and we do such a great service. Mm. And he said, we're so proud of what we do. And he said, and I think he was being generous here. He said, then these uh, boutique banks, <laughs> referring, mm. I think, to SVP and, and, and Signature Bank, you know, do what they do, and they screw it up for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's hard enough. And and he just said, just wanted, you know, sort of just wanted to vent on it. And I started thinking because I started working uh, with him uh, at a bank in 1974. I worked at a bank all through college. And he stayed in. And a lot of my friends that I initially started working uh, uh, with at the bank stayed in banking their entire careers. Mm-hmm. And I just started thinking about the banking industry and, you know, the small and regional banks because I started with the regional bank that I believe was just acquired back in 74 by a, you know, by a monster uh, bank still at that time, HSBC. But they still had the culture of a re- regional bank. And and I started, you know, you know, re- region. Well, well, let me just talk about this. When you look at the way banking used to be, one of our other friends uh, uh, Fred, that we started working with. When I met him, and I actually met him in college first, and then I started working with him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, you're also... And we all started out as bill collectors. And he had a deep love for banking. I believe it was in his family. And his goal was to be a bank manager. And there was a pride about working for a bank in your local community, even though it was a city you know, medium-sized city, you know, Buffalo, that I grew up in, uh, there was there was a pride in working for the bank because the bank was part of the community. And I'll never forget, you know, Fred, who eventually became the bank manager. And when he did, he was disappointed because you went to that point then in the late 70s, early 80s, more technology came in. And the personal service of a bank manager like my father, when my father would go in, my father wasn't a bank manager, but he would go into the local bank even if they were pretty large regional bank, everybody stopped by and talked to the bank manager. Everybody knew who the bank manager was. Things weren't done strictly by numbers. It was done by the fact that you built relationships, you know, with the bank and you built it through that that bank manager and you did it through the rural and the, the regional banks. Even in the cities back then, you did it. It wasn't just a numbers game as it is now. And so the small and regional banks... And I, I don't want to sound like I'm a Mr. Fezziwig here from uh, from uh, Scrooge. Remember, oh, uh, back to, uh, I will stick with the old ways. Technology was going to take over banking. Mm-hmm. But 
sometimes in the movies they make it seem like whether it was Mr. Fizzywig and his regional bank or Jimmy Stewart in um, uh, the uh, oh, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Thank you so much. Well, that's Bladen Bart. Yeah, it was. It was. It was almost as you know, as if that that uh, the the banks were charities. Yeah. Well, they were never charities. And they should never have been charities. They were a prop. They, they are and uh, were a profit-making venture, but they were profit-making bench venture by building relationships with people. Those bank managers and those regional banks. There was a sense of pride. They were a part of that community. They helped build the community legitimately, loaning money out to people. And back then, you didn't have the tech. Okay. Show me the piece of paper. There it is. They knew you. And I remember when I had left the bank and I'd gone into radio and then it just didn't work out and I ended up being a machinist. But I didn't have a great, you know, I didn't have a, like a long work history. And I went in to get a loan and I went to Fred's bank and he loaned it to me. There was no problem. There it is. And I forgot, I don't know how much it was at that time, $2,000, $3,000, whatever. I probably didn't have whatever they were looking at. I didn't have a you know long, steady employment with one company. I was always employed. But the fact is, he knew me. And he knew no matter what, I would pay off that loan. Mm-hmm. And I know that the credit rating, we've talked about credit ratings before and how many, you know, many of the experts will say no. The credit rating does absolutely if you have a if you have a credit rating over eight hundred, you're gonna pay your bills. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way that you can still do it. And I'm not saying you can go back to that to the scale that you had it, but that wasn't a bad culture to live in because when you took a loan out, you know, from your local bank, you weren't just taking it from, you know, the big massive industrial bank, you know, that international bank, uh, you were getting it from Fred. You know, there was a sense of if you had problems with the loan, Fred gave it to you, Fred would call you. And, there was a sense of of obligation that you and I think it's part of what you and I talk about today when it comes to you know you we've you mentioned I think yesterday about John Taffer and Bar, Bar Rescue when we would sit there and say these bar owners that get into this incredible debt it's almost like it doesn't exist to them they're not worried about it it's My on God. paper but it really right. doesn't look like and it's right. not and you don't treat it the same as a if you had a million dollars in front of you or right. if someone came to collect a million dollars that you had built up in your business and they took that million dollars in cash away from you that would be a very different thought now i and and i asked the question to apply it i'll let you get back to it uh, to apply it to uh svb or or uh any of the other banks was was there any kind of uh is it generational is there any kind of culture there that lent them lent to their type of behavior. Larry Summers yesterday talking about how it was the fundamental mistake that Silicon Valley Bank made, and that is borrowing short-term, investing right. long-term. So my question would be, if that if they made that fundamental mistake by his accounts, then who was in charge? Right. Did they have, yes. it, right. and was it, did they, what was their mission statement if not the very fundamentals of banking. And and that's what I, you know, what I got from and again he didn't go into specific details. I'm sure that when I visit him, as I do every year, him and his lovely wife Mary and 
and and we hang out for Memorial Day, I'll get my, you know, I'll, I'll that's right, Jerry, I'll, Gary, and Mary. Yeah, Jerry, Gary, yes. and Mary. Yes, mm-hmm. we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. He'll, you know, he'll give me just a, you know, a a huge mouthful of it, but <laughs> of of you know, he he doesn't hold back. But it was almost like I just not because I'm on the radio. I don't think he had any idea I was going to you know do this, or he expected that I was going to talk about it. But it just hit me. I went wow because I came. My first really experience in business was banking, and yeah. and so I'm. And when you look at it, and he's just like. And, and you and I've talked about before after the banking, you know, the, the collapse of the, the mortgage meltdown because of the manipulation of the mortgage market by government, everything that went through there where right. they gave, oh, the big banks can't fail, which made it tougher for right. the small and regional banks. And remember the consolidations then, right. but still they survived and they survived legitimately to this point. And then bad actors, mm-hmm. you know, you look at it, there's no reason. You know, we mentioned it yesterday and we chuckled about it because Barney Frank came out and, and said, well, I took the job because I needed the money. There's no way that Barney Frank should be on any bank's board of directors ever. No. After what happened with the, the mortgage meltdown. Being a board of director or having influence in a bank today or many financial institutions like, you know, you saw Janet Yellen. Mm-hmm. You know, she's it's like, just stop it. I mean, she was just useless yesterday. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, uh, on it. Yeah. It's almost as if it's frustrating. It's almost as if, you know, I'm on a board of directors of a bank. It's almost like it's an elite entitlement. Yeah, no, the, you're right. The qualifications no, don't matter. Right. And he was just saying, he goes, that, you know, we've got a niche and we're a we're a damn great bank. Mm-hmm. He told me he just said, he goes, you could hear the passion. He goes, we're a great bank. And there's so many good regional banks out there and they have a niche and it's important. And here these idiots are destroying, you know, are destroying it and hurting us right now. Yeah. And we've done nothing wrong. Right. We get punished. And, you know, and now he didn't say it that way. I'm adding into it. But I know that's part of what he would want to express. So I just wanted to say that because it, well, it was something, it was no, something that hit me big. It's something that hit me big because my history, like I said, first starts in the banking industry. And and it's important to bring that experience, by the way, to our friends, uh, my friends and your friends uh, that we've been, you know, that we've known for a very long time. Uh, there's a pretty decent chance in fact probability that eventually we're going to talk about you on the air uh whether you, whether you're testifying before congress on a broken border and we actually play audio of you saying things on the air or you lend your very important experience and that's the thing that jerry did there in and it's it is you know that's that's one of the things that we think of all right so so you know the old mattress money i still know somebody and I, I love this person to death. They're a family member, and they have a safe. It's a it's a massive safe, and they keep some cash in there. Not all their cash. They do banking, but they and they're not one of these. Well, I don't trust the banks. I don't trust the banks. It's more like well, but if I need cash and it's a Sunday, you know, if I if and I don't know why they would need that much cash. I don't ask them their business, but <laughs> it's it is this. In the modern age, we have gotten to where we can, and now uh, I do it all the time for business. I do it all the time in my personal life. I have all of the different cash transfer apps where I can send somebody money or they can send me money. It hits the account. As soon as a text goes through, you can see it on your account. That's how fast things move these days. And, and, And so... I don't think that's a part of it. It's just in an equation where everything is moving so quickly. You look at Silicon Valley Bank, and my question is, 
where they focused on all these other things and not focused on, like Larry Summers said yesterday, the fundamentals. And it, it, the, the very, this is, you know, very basics of banking. You don't, uh, you don't lend, you, you don't borrow short term and then invest long term. Well, and it's, it, it's, you know, you broke, you broke a very fundamental rule. And, and I guess we'll find that out soon enough. But my question would be, is it isolated to that bank if it is a cultural or generational thing or, you know, it, it, or was it a temporary thing where they just didn't have the right people doing the right jobs? When I, I don't when, know. When I talk to Jerry, I'm sure it's it's part of the, the just the whole morality. You know, there he's been in banking for half a century now mm-hmm. and he is he's seen everything, but he's always been a person in the banking industry. And he said so many of these, you know, s- small and regional banks are. You know, they're about integrity. They're about honesty. They're about solid financial fundamentals. And what we see in our country, we talked about this before, the people that do wrong get bailed out and everybody else has to pay for it. Right. And I think that's really what his thing was, was, you know, the morality of the fact that we're doing everything right. The people, the bad actors there, the ones that are irresponsible are doing it wrong. The government bails them out in in essence giving them an advantage yeah the regional banks then are all viewed as well we need to be in the big bankings so the deposits are pulled out right we get screwed over for doing the right thing they benefit from doing the wrong thing and while the i think government, that's part of the frustration right while the government nurtures a an environment where risk is no longer part of the game which means right. it's going to happen again there's no way it won't but just wanted to mention that Start off the show with that. So. Yeah, and thank yeah. you, Jerry, for yeah. thanks, Jerry. That experience. <laughs> it was, no, it was it was great that I got it because it made me think just you know about how the banking industry and finances has changed in this country. Well, my my primary account is with a smaller regional bank, and I started with them years ago, and 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 but I really appreciate you know the the bank that they are now. Uh, it's really great customer service. They actually make phone calls. Somebody answers the phone when I call them. And it's it's a great bank, and it's one of the reasons that I, I bank there. 866-90-RED-EYE. It's not always easy to spring back from the harsh days of winter to warmer months ahead. From de-icing chemicals to hidden debris underneath snow and ice, winter conditions can do serious damage to your truck. Here's a must-do maintenance check to help you minimize downtime and stay rolling. Have your batteries tested and inspect your electrical system for any exposed connections, wires, or butt connectors. Get any exposed components repaired immediately, as the acidic nature of highway de-icers will erode any exposed connections or wires in no time at all. This report is brought to you by Shell Rotella. Shell Rotella, with advanced synthetic technology, is designed to help keep your rig running with more mileage and less maintenance. Lines open for your calls. 866-90-RED-EYE on Red Eye Radio. And now for a segment called Just Something I've Noticed, brought to you by our friends at Motel 6. Just something I've noticed, bargain hunting is back. I mean, bargain hunting's always been around. We always love a great deal. But man, everywhere you look, people are bargain hunting. You know, there's so many great ways to find great deals. Hey, I have a great find in your bargain hunting journey. Book online at motel6.com. Use the code CPREDEYE to get 15% off your stay at Motel 6 or Studio 6. 
With almost 1,500 locations across the country, there's almost always a Motel 6 or Studio 6 nearby. And truck parking is available at most locations. Enjoy a clean, comfortable room at a price that's a real bargain when you use the code CPREDEYE. That's the letters CPREDEYE, all one word, for 15% off your stay at Motel6.com. That is a bargain. That's just something I've noticed. Brought to you by Motel 6. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Carley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 866-90-RED-EYE. You know, it's been so long since I was in banking. You know, when, when Jerry sent that, you know, message to me, it just was, it just brought it all back. You know, it brought it all yeah. back. Yeah. You know, just yeah. growing up and the way that, you know, regional banks and, and local banks were, uh, you know, a part of the community and you could, you could, you could sense it and feel it. Yeah. And, sure. and I could feel that in his, in, you know, in his, just his emotion in his voice and the message that he that he left me that you know here we go that the you know small regional banks still fill a huge niche in America and we're being screwed over and yeah. we haven't done yeah. anything wrong right no the, in fact if you look at it they've had to work harder harder yes. to 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 yes. you know in 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 whatever their mission statement is as a, as a company as an organization in order to gain that trust and especially in today's world and, and it was, it's like we're not looking for a handout, right? We just, you know, if we're good players, we don't want to have to pay for the bad players, and we don't exactly. want we don't want the bad players to gain an advantage over us because they were irresponsible and negligent in their banking practices. Right, right. In fact, that's in part what Dodd Frank did, and they had yeah. to roll some of that back. But it was basically uh, giving more leverage to the larger banks, Thanks. not the smaller banks. The Bonus Show. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Hardy, and I'm Gary McNamara, 86690 uh, Red Eye. So I've got my St. Patrick's Day shirt on. Oh, and, oh and yeah, so- but, yeah, but you're you're an amateur compared to what I saw today. Right after you and I spoke, we were talking about the weather on the phone yeah. uh, uh, in the afternoon. Uh it's a very nice shirt, by the way. I saw a guy get off of a bus, a, a, a local transportation, um, uh, public transportation bus. A bus. Yeah, yeah, bus. Yeah, it's it's a, it wasn't like a tour bus, you know. You know, it wasn't a, uh, an artist on the road 
it, it was a local public transportation bus. So he gets off and he's got, and I'm, I'm a bit confused because I haven't been keeping track of the dates. This week has been kind of a blur and he's got head to toe. I don't know if the pants were pajamas or not, but it was green pants with clovers all over them. Shorts <laughs> over the pants that had green clovers on them. A long sleeve shirt with green clovers on them. It, it, uh, uh, older gentleman, probably the one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. I didn't talk to him. And a green hat, top hat. And I thought, oh, there's a kid's party somewhere around here. And he's the entertainment. Nope. He was just walking over to the uh, shopping center. He started walking. I, I was I was there in the parking lot. And he was just walking through the shopping center doing some shopping. He was just dressed. And I thought to myself, well, then, it, you know, I looked at my phone yesterday. And it was... March 16th, and I thought, well, what's he going to do tomorrow? If this is what he's doing on March 16th, what is he doing on March 17th? <laughs> the actual St. Patrick's Day. Now, uh, with the last name McNamara, mm. and going back through my family tree, I'm as Irish as you possibly can get. Mm. And w- without red you sure hair, drink that way. With, with, <laughs> Don't fight me over that, by the way. <laughs> without red hair and freckles. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, I am, I am uh, the, you know, normally, you know, we Irish, you know, the stereotypes, we accept it. But there's one stereotype that you'll fight people over that I will <laughs> fight people over all the time. And it's not that we're hot tempered. No, it's just that you've and been drinking. No, no, no. It's not even the drinking. The one stereotype. It's a little bit of the drinking. No. No, it's not. This bit. is a totally sober comment here. Okay. As I hit the microphone. I hit the microphone. Stand and back up, Gary. I, I just hit the microphone. Balance and it for spun around. For some reason. <laughs> and, I, and I remember. Uh-huh. And I remember because this happened uh, it very early on in my talk radio career. I mean, yeah. within a, a year of it, when mm-hmm. I'm talking about the issues. And I was at the St. Patrick's Day party. And and, uh, and and this was in New York. And there were these you know, Irish folks that were there yeah. that yeah. were yeah. furious at me. Yeah. Like three or four of them in a group. Right. Because I did not fit a particular Irish stereotype. And that was, I'll never forget, they came up and they were fuming. You're Irish Catholic. Why aren't you a Democrat liberal? Living in Boston. Oh, I just threw that in. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I was in Buffalo. And they were. What are you they, in, why are you in Buffalo? They, they were. And, and so the one stereotype mm-hmm. that actually bothered me mm-hmm. about the Irish came from the Irish. I like that. Why aren't you a liberal Democrat? You're you're Irish Catholic. I'll well, never forget that. I was like, wow, somebody's actually walking around angry 
Well, it's the been Irish. Think- they're always angry. And, 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 admit, and admit that. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might have been angry and drinking. I Not that they, I want to promote I any I think they invented like the angry left. <laughs> <laughs> The founders of the angry left. <laughs> well, I did see a lot of Ted Kennedy in them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's so old that, you know, that's that joke is actually so old. There are probably some people that don't understand the joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, during during severe weather yesterday, I saw one of the local weather guys say uh, 50, uh, half dollar size hail. Well, if you're younger, you probably have never seen it. Never mind. It's larger than a quarter size hail. I thought the same thing. They said a half dollar. I'm like, you know, nobody relates to that. Yes, I was watching that when he said that. Who always does a great job. Half dollar. I'm like, nobody, nobody knows what that is. You know, you're younger. You probably. And I thought to myself, you know, and I was thinking about it because I, I'm an amateur coin collector. I'm just fascinated. I'm not a real collector. But I fa- I'm fascinated with certain coins and and anomalies, especially because they're usually worth something. But but I just love looking at coins. It just to me, it's just fascinating the life of a coin and how far it's traveled. And I have some, uh, I had some half dollars sitting in my <laughs> nightstand drawer at that time. I understand it. Oh yeah, yeah. I am old. Never mind. Wow. I was thinking the same thing because uh, because that we had. I mean, it was. I I couldn't go to sleep until yeah. all the storms. I had a storm, you know, south of me and north of me, and the right. real bad hail was only about six miles north of me. Right, yeah. And they're following it in and saying, and some of this is tennis balls. I'm like, oh, no. Because oh, the only thing you're yeah. thinking of, if you're in the direct path, is I got to buy a new roof. What's my deductible? Yeah. Because that. And I just it, put right. a new windshield on my truck a couple and, of weeks ago, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah. oi. You know, and I was driving around. Yep. That's you know, I was driving. I was, I was like, yeah. and but when he when he said that half dollar, and I'm thinking, you know, all the, there's a ton of people out there thinking. So a paper dollar, and you split it in, in half, <laughs> and well, that's no, pretty I big. Didn't even, I didn't even go that far, but no, that's a good point. Oh, it's the half the size of a dollar. That's huge. No, no, half dollar. I know that's what he said. Half dollar. No, it's a never mind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so that's that's the stereotype that I object to the most. Most yeah, not, not really. I mean, I burst out laughing. I'll never mm. because they were angry. I said, "I'm I I'm Irish Catholic." Well, the if you're using the Catholic part of me, that would make me a social conservative. Yeah. So I'm actually trying to have a conversation with them as to and what does the Irish have to do with my, you know? So I said, and I because. Knowing me, I want to break it down. All right, so you say right. I'm Irish Catholic, and I shouldn't be a, uh, that I should be a liberal Democrat, and I'm not. Well, okay, the Catholic in there would make me a social conservative, would it not? Mm-hmm. I mean, you expect mm-hmm. me to buy if 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 that's your argument, you would expect me uh, uh, to abide by the the philosophy and the catechetical text of of the of of the church, right? So I'd have to be. I a, think so. I'd have to be a. A, a social conservative. Mm-hmm. All right, then what about Irish or or the Catholic part of it would make me a fiscal liberal? And they just looked at me like, whatever, you're an idiot. And they turned around and walked away. Went like, back to the bar. <laughs> so I went back and went, okay. <laughs> Ordered went, some more rounds. Went, went back to stew in their rage. 
pumping their fists in the air, <laughs> hitting things and, and, and people. And, and ale. And, no. <laughs> <laughs> Spilling their drinks. <laughs> <laughs> just, keep, just keep the stereotype going. While, while, while tears flowing down over their freckles. Yeah. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and their red beards. <laughs> oh, the guilt they're going to feel in the morning. <laughs> oh uh, man! You know, see, uh, see, you have to you have to take the stereotypes and laugh at them. That's yeah, what yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's always it's all in good fun. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. you know that um, this program. Uh, going back to, you know, basically the all-night show, our flagship station, WBAP, and going back to 19, 1969, I'd actually have to go back and see what they were doing before Bill Mack, but Bill Mack, uh, me, you, Joe Kelly, it's, a- it's always been Irish, I'm Scotch-Irish, but it counts, that have been hosting the airways, well, since 1969. We controlled the airwaves, the all-night airwaves at WBAP, on the flagship WBAP. It's always been an Irishman behind the mic since then. I think was, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure what yeah, they were uh, doing before that. I, I think it was my, my father one time because somebody called up, you know, it was one of those calls and, and said, you know, the, the, the Jews control the media. Mm. You know, that used yeah. to be one of the mm. things that was, was out you know, mm. that – that people would say, and my father said, "Hey, I heard that call the other day. Actually, it's the Irish. You, Hannity, <laughs> he's like, uh, yeah. O'Reilly, because O'Reilly was around at the time, right? I'm just, <laughs> and he just he went through all these Irish people in the media. He goes, you guys control the narrative. Right. <laughs> he goes, it's Problem the Irish. Is, it's the Irish. It's, it's like wow. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know, I I look at it and I." Look, I had some fun uh, doing and still doing working with my oldest brother, actually, right now, uh, doing some of the ancestry stuff and, and the family tree stuff. The stories that my dad wants to know, right, and and because uh, on his side of it, there, was, there were a lot of questions and there wasn't much evidence. Um, so uh, that required a ton of work, still is a lot of work in doing that. Uh, but it's always interesting and in looking at it, uh, you know, the, the heritage. And I, I like looking at the migration of people, actually, it, it, whether they're related to me or not, you know, where they come from and, and why they moved where they moved to, you know, and and when and what that took back then. On my mom's side uh, from Scotland, the Burnettes of Lays, who had been in in Scotland Going back to William Wallace, and then all of a sudden they go to Tennessee and then to Texas. Uh, Samuel Burke Burnett uh, was a became a Texas rancher, uh, founded the Four Sixes Ranch that uh, people may know from the show Yellowstone. But I think about where that lineage goes. I mean, they're in Scotland for hundreds of years that I know of, and then all of a sudden. They, they, there's this migration pattern, and I always look at that, and it's, you know, it, it, what was the draw of the United States back then, right? What would it take? Because what did it require for someone to pick up and then move across the world? It, you weren't just, you know, 
Uh, not that the covered wagon thing was was easy, but you're talking about moving across the world. And to me, it's just fascinating watching that. Well, when they did our family tree, that's when I found out. I remember the family tree was there and everything else. And I mm-hmm. believe, I forgot who it was that told me. And I saw it and went, yeah, 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 yeah. I mm-hmm. think it was my nephew about 15 years ago. He said, well, you know that one of your, you know, one of our ancestors is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. What? From the National Hockey League, yeah, yeah, from uh, 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 the George George, uh, George McNamara, who yeah. uh, won the Stanley Cup back in 1914 with the Toronto Blue Shirts, and I yeah. think his brother, his brother, uh, to his brothers also, Harold and Howard played hmm. in the NHL. I believe it was Howard or Harold. I believe I'm not sure hmm. who then uh, won it in 1917 with uh, the Montreal with Montreal, right. And uh, and I didn't know that. It was like, wow. In a couple of years, and I talked about it on the air one time, and somebody sent me, they said, you know, George McNamara's hockey card is available. Mm. And I saw it. It was like, I forgot where, which website it was on. And I bought it. And yeah. my father has it. That's, you an, know? it. that's an interesting period, too, yep. because it was right before the Spanish flu. There was one year, yeah. either 1918 or 1919, that the Stanley Cup didn't happen Yeah, because of the yep. Spanish flu. And and so yeah, but finding the hockey card was unbelievable. It's yeah, like, wow, and it that, wasn't that expensive. Crazy. It was, yeah. I think, it was less than fifty bucks. My uh, my grandfather's World War One registration card. That is crazy to look at. That yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that so is that document. That, yep. Yeah, that's that's that's. I just love looking at that stuff. Eight six six ninety red eye. Get in touch with Red Eye Radio, toll-free at 866-90-RED-EYE. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Carlin. I'm Gary McNamara, 866-90-RED-EYE. Okay, it was Howard McNamara who won with the uh with the uh the Stanley Cup for the Montreal Canadiens and it was 1916 so it was the year mm. before it wasn't 17 all right. that the pandemic hit so yeah. yeah and and I will tell you this with all honesty for all the elite athleticism that my ancestors had mm-hmm. uh Howard and uh and George mm-hmm. and Harold yeah. all playing in the National Hockey League yeah none of it was passed down to me yeah None of it. I'll tell you the uh, the skills and the the manual labor and everything that that uh, in my family tree, it stops with me. <laughs> You're welcome. Top of the hour news is brought to you by House Products. Visit HouseProducts.com. This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. Now, it's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show. This is Red Eye Radio. All across America and around the planet, 866-90-RED-EYE. He is Eric Harley, and I'm Gary McNamara. Good morning. Download our app today and listen when and where you want. That's our Red Eye Radio app. 
If you can't listen live overnight, you can listen when and where you want, when you choose. So there you go. Uh, I do want to play this uh, yesterday from uh, the White House press briefing with Corrine Jean-Pierre. Mm. And this is really interesting because this is, you can tell that the White House press corps is getting angry that they can't get any answers and they can never yeah. they can never ask a question to the president. Right. And so it's brought up that the president's going to meet with the uh uh you know with the uh, the the prime minister of uh, of Ireland today mm. and you know the whole question is is you know will they be able to ask questions and you can hear it gets a little bit wild at the end. Say one more. Go ahead, Karen. It's green. Um, you laid out a very detailed schedule for the president tomorrow with the prime minister of Ireland, but it did not include a two-and-two press conference. Can you say why not and whether that might be added to the schedule tomorrow? So you, I think you're having a pattern with a lot of the world leaders who are coming well, to the White House. Uh, look, I've spoken up to this many times when it comes to diplomatic... Up in the briefing that it's not I, part of the schedule. Right, and my, I, again, I brought it up many times and I gave an exp- explanation. These are diplomatic conversations that happen with the, with, uh, uh, with the countries that are visiting, uh, and it is something that uh, is decided in that way. Okay, very quickly, she's not answering the question. No. It's no. like, why aren't you going to have a press conference? Right. Well, these are things that are go- what do you mean negotiated or, you know, because, no, it, why? basically they want to know why isn't the president speaking, and then they start attacking back here uh, as a group, mm-hmm. you know, saying he turns around, doesn't matter when he holds these things, he turns around and walks away. Right. He gets angry when he when we ask him questions. Here, this this is great. Um, but uh, there will no there will not be a two plus two tomorrow, as you just noted. But again, this is in coordination uh, with um, with the country that come to visit uh, here at the White House. You're going to have an opportunity, uh, or your colleagues will have an opportunity uh, to ask questions uh, during the uh, the uh, pool spray of the Oval at the Oval that that happened every time a. A, um, a, a head of state visits. So that is an opportunity uh, to be able to pose a question uh, to the president or uh, or the head of state that is visiting uh, the White House on that day. But again, this is coordinated. He's answered questions. get yelled at. It's not... Here's, but, here's, I hear you guys. I hear you guys. I hear you guys. Look, the two plus two is something that is done in coordination with the country that is visiting. That is not something that is unilaterally decided. That is something that is in discussion with the other country. I was asked about the two plus two. I was also I also was adding that uh, there is an opportunity where press will be in the room. She's just repeating what they haven't accepted to begin with. Yeah. She's repeating the same thing, and let's see this. With the two leaders, uh, I cannot speak to if who's going to take questions or who's not going to take questions. Uh, as you know, this is a president that takes shouted questions often, but the two plus two is not a unilateral decision. It is a, a decision that happens uh, with the visiting country uh, in coordination with them. With that, guys, I'll see you. Thank you. Did you hear that? What, mm. I have a question about... The mysterious Biden, it, yeah. Haley, Haley Biden, that, that one, and she just turned around and kept walking out very, very quickly. I wonder if she went to reporters yesterday because that was the first question that you heard that she walked out where reporters screamed that because that story uh, expanded yesterday. Uh, and uh, uh, this is where, uh, reading the New York Poster, a couple of uh, uh, stories, where the money went, the Bidens and Biden Associates that received Chinese cash. This is really damning. Now, yeah. the media is trying to ignore it, mm. 
But the fact is, this is not the elephant in the living room. This is now the blue whale pod in the living room. We haven't said that in a few months. (laughs) Elephants are small compared to blue whales and uh, very, very small compared to a blue whale pod. Uh, And just reading here from the... um, New York Post, bravo to Representative Jim Comer for revealing just how much of the family business Biden Inc. is. Bank records newly obtained by his House Oversight Committee show that Hunter Biden associate Rob Walker transferred north of $1.3 million in 2017, not only to the usual suspects, Hunter and presidential little brother Jim, but also to daughter-in-law Hallie, son Bo's widow, and Hunter's uh, brief fling, hmm. that's from the New York Post, plus another unknown simply tagged as Biden. The family that gets paid together stays together, it seems. Most of the big chunk of change came from a $3 million transfer from the affiliate of Chinese energy outfit CEFC to Walker. CEFC is now defunct, one of China's biggest private companies, and the main target of Hunter Biden's operations back in 2017 with the first son angling for a ultra-high-paid board seat and equity stakes for him and Jim and an unnamed big guy, quote, big guy, end of quote, widely widely thought to be Joe. In fact, one witness, as we know, is willing to testify under oath, Bob Ulinsky, that that is Joe. He's already stated that publicly. Right. The new records cast further on just how commingled the Biden family life is with the larger business operations of the uh, the uh, clan. There is no possible legit reason Hallie, uh, Haley Biden, who works as a school counselor, should have gotten a slice of the CEFC payout. Now, I, I don't see why, why Jim, I don't see... Why anybody should have gotten the payout, I don't know what services they gave to the Chinese energy company. What what possibly could the Biden family, if the president has nothing to do with it, what services did the Biden family provide to the, and who was the unknown Biden to begin with, but what did the Biden family provide in order to get that type of a payout from the Chinese energy company associated with the Chinese Communist Party. This is a nightmare for this administration because now the actual cash values are coming out and the question everybody asks is, why are the why is the Chinese Communist Party through the defunct Chinese energy company paying the Biden family and that amount right after the vice president was out of office in 2017, well, because within a month after. There's the question. If you look at, you know, because the left is, and the leftist media is doing this. Yeah, but the but the Trump family and Jared Kushner, but the... Fine, hold on a second. Here's the thing. There is a long-established history of their business dealings, what they have done, right? Who they are, what their job is, their role inside the Trump organization, all of that. It started long before he became, that Trump became president. Show me that with the Bidens. Show me right. all this this Biden family organization. Because wouldn't that be known? 
if all of these members of the Biden family are being enriched, what is that for? What is the, what is their what, business? What what is the business that they're in? Now, stating that as you just did about the long history of 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 uh, Trump in business, we have said it. If you believe there was something illegally done, bring it. Yep. If you believe that Jared Kushner, Kushner, excuse me, and President Trump were involved in influence peddling, bring it forward. Yep. No we problem are, at all. We are not justifying any lawmaking whatsoever. If you have an allegation that connects the dots of influence peddling on the Trump administration, bring it. Right. I I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. And, and as far as I know, no media organization is attempting to uh, censor the allegations against Jared Kushner. No, I I don't. I don't know of any. Yeah, neither do I, because it's not happening. And, you know, that's it. it. Again, show me this. It, and it doesn't have to be a long history. I mean, uh, the Trump organization has been around for decades. But, I mean, if, if the Biden organization, family business, has been around even for a short time, wouldn't we know that? Yeah, what, what's the business? What do they yeah. do? Exactly what do they do? And so Haley uh, getting that money, Haley, whatever, getting that money, really, that's the thing there. You go, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That not again, not that you still still didn't go, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. because that's the question. What do they do? What did Hunter do? Right. What did what did his brother Jim do? What do they, they what do they actually do? What what? Why is this money being transferred? Right. From a company with ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Right. And why is it being funneled that way? That's a, that, and so the last couple of days, and they're going to run from that. They're, they don't want to answer any questions on that. Expect now that the Republicans are on this for Biden to even take fewer questions than he has taken than he's taken already. And if yeah. that question is asked, he turns around and walks away. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the problem with it. Now that you have, and remember, these are bank records. And these are banks that found, you know, suspicious uh activity, these suspicious activity reports. They're not Republicans. No. These are banks that did it. And there's 150 of them yeah, relating to Hunter Biden and the Biden family, suspicious activity reports. And so, again, when you see, we've seen the polling, the public already believes that influence peddling has happened with the Biden family, Mm -hmm. that the Biden family has been enriched by Joe Biden being in politics. Right. That's what the public thinks. Everything, all this adds another dot close to being connected, another dot being close connected, another dot being closely connected. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with this for the president. Well, and that's it. And which is why nobody, even before this, was defending the president. Right. No. All you, all you get is, oh, they're going after Hunter. Uh, Hunter's not president. And we all know that's the no 
The Republicans are not going after Hunter. They're going after the president. And they're going after the president because it doesn't matter whether you enrich yourself or enrich your family or enrich your family, who then, as Bobby Linsky and other, you know, other uh, evidence has shown, uh, money and services was passed on to the president. Mm-hmm. You know, the things for his uh, the home, the you know, home improvements Look, and things there, like that. There That's, was concern by the Obama administration. You can even take Trump out of it for a minute. This concern goes back years. And so I don't know I don't know of anybody. I don't know of anybody in public office whether I voted for them or not. I know the Democrats don't think this way. Uh I most rank and file, I don't know how they think about uh, Democrats, how they think about Joe Biden. But we don't hear the same kind of, you know, uh, approach that you and I have had. And that is, look, if I voted for even if I voted for somebody and supported them, you know, for years by voting for them. If they did something wrong. I don't that that doesn't fall on me if it's found that they did something wrong, then you take every measure necessary well, to make it right. We, I, that's, we've gone. We've, I've never had a problem with that. We've gone point by point in every allegation against Trump. Right. We've done that and said, okay, where's the law breaking? Where does it exist here? Everything right. from you know Russia collusion, which again was a complete con by the mm-hmm. Democrats, mm-hmm. orchestrated by the Hillary campaign. We all know that now. Nobody denies uh, that. We went through the other day what uh, Bragg might have or mm-hmm. what Bragg may be looking at. Right. So we don't sit there if there's allegations we bring it up mm-hmm. and we look and say okay is there any law broken here but it's the democrats that wish to hide everything well because my 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 i think our approach you know has always been and and quite often with people who support republicans or with conservatives in general i think it has been that i don't want that falling on the rest of the political movement. If that one person has done something wrong, then that person needs to pay that price. And uh, we've said for years, the Republicans are much faster to eat their own. I don't know if that's still the case these days, but I believe it is. And the, the point of that is, look, if you do something, then if, if we're, if we're supporting this party based on, uh, what they, represent what the, what we want them to do i don't want anybody getting in the way even members of the party and if they've done something wrong look into it there should be something done about it bring the evidence and move accordingly Eight six six ninety red eye most owner operators leased to larger carriers are paid on a per mile basis or a percentage of revenue per load the per-mile basis is most prevalent among larger fleets. Percentage at smaller. Pay per mile tends to dominate discussions about pay just because it's easier to measure. And pay per mile often is wrongly used as the deciding factor in leasing to a carrier. While pay per mile can be a vital factor, it's not a cure for every ill. Nor does it mean a big settlement check is coming an owner-operator's way. Why? Because pay per mile always must be considered in balance with gross revenue as well as total costs. Gross revenue can include flat mileage pay, mileage pay that varies by length of haul, 
percentage revenue pay, and more. Most importantly, though, for every revenue dollar generated, only part of that dollar is profit. But for every extra dollar of cost saved, the entire dollar contributes to profit. Knowing and understanding your cost to operate is fundamental to understanding the true value of any pay package. Owner-Operator Business 101 is provided by Shell Rotella. Shell Rotella, with advanced synthetic technology, is designed to help keep your rig running with more mileage and less maintenance. We'll be right back with more Red Eye Radio with Eric Harley and Gary McNamara. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Harley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 86690-RED-EYE. Uh, I find this really interesting, you know, the, the effect of inflation, uh, taxes, high cost of living. Mm. New study out found that one, a $100,000 annual salary is worth just 35000 in New York City. Due to high inflation, the six-figure salary is being increasingly sapped of its value due to the purchasing power declines and cost of living increase. The study... From personal finance advisor Smart Asset, measured 76 different cities in the United States and found that the effect is felt in every city, even the place where the salary goes the furthest, Memphis, Tennessee. It's only worth $86,444. The worst was New York City, where the salary is worth approximately $35,791 when taking into account taxes and the cost of uh, living. Uh, Oklahoma City was found to have the lowest cost of living in the study, although taxes sent it to third place uh, with 100000 worth 84000 Notably, seven of the top ten cities where $100,000 goes the furthest in Texas uh, were El Paso, Corpus Christi, Lubbock, Houston, San Antonio, Fort Worth, and Arlington, Texas. Mm. Well, there you go which the prices, whether it's Arlington or anywhere in the DFW area, are not that different. No, no, no. no. So not. that's interesting. I didn't know that. On the opposite end, the worst were New York City, Honolulu, San Francisco, Washington, Long Beach, California, Los Angeles, San Diego, Oakland, uh, Boston, and Seattle. Mm. In the three worst cities... $100,000 was worth less than $40,000. When you see that disparity, because that yeah. disparity is almost $50,000. Yeah. That's huge. That, it, that, that, that is. Yes.
Consider yourself canceled if you don't listen nightly. Red Eye Radio. And he is Eric Hurley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 86690-RED-EYE. Uh, Welcome and good morning. I just saw that the uh, Philadelphia Fed manufacturing survey remains deeply depressed. Seventh straight month of contraction. And we talked about the uh, New York, the Empire State manufacturing survey this, that is down. Uh, this one came out yesterday. The Philadelphia Fed said its index for current general activity uh, rose one point to a minus 23.2, the seventh consecutive negative reading, while it's an improvement from the minus 24.3 in February. Any reading below zero indicates a contraction in activity from the previous month. So, again, there's it's still contracting. And the median okay. forecast is that it would have popped up to a negative 15.5. Yeah. So that was a pretty good miss on that median forecast which means there was something going on that the analysts had not expected. And they said uh, both the index of new orders, a critical metric for demand of manufactured goods in the region, Mm -hmm. and the index measuring shipments have declined to their lowest reading since May of 2020. Now, we know what happened in May of 2020 when much of the economy was locked down in the initial wave of the pandemic. The index of new – and that's incredible when you think about it because we shut down our economy. Right, yeah. But uh, the index of new orders fell 15 points to minus 28.2. Only 35% of firms reported declines uh, in uh, in new orders unchanged since last month. 7% reported increases. 38%, 58% reported no change. Mm. So that's uh, right. what we're, um, you know, yeah, 35% reported declines in orders. That's huge. Uh, the shipments index had a sharp uh, drop, too. The Fed's report follows the Empire State survey released by the New York Fed on Wednesday. That index showed the business activity in New York State had continued to decline. The general business conditions index fell roughly 19 points to minus 24.6 from 5.8 in January. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and of course... uh Manufacturing, when if manufacturing is down and shipping is down, then you have that uh, ripple effect throughout the economy. Uh, that means that fewer trucking loads uh, going uh, back and forth to the ports or anywhere from those, you know, from manufacturing and and um, and that part of that leg of the shipping infrastructure, and and it makes you wonder. If analysts are looking, if if they've got so many misses, my question is, why why are they missing? What are they not getting right now? You know, one of the things I was looking at because we talk about you know talking about New York State, talking about Pen- the, the Pennsylvania index, looking at particular regions and, and areas out there. One of the things was the census numbers that came out, the population change of states mm. between in just you know from twenty twenty. Right. At the end of 2022. Yeah. And so we're talking about COVID through uh, last last December. Hmm. And looking at the, the states that had population increases uh, over 100,000, okay, look because you could look at that and say that's significant. Texas, the population change, increased 884,000 people. Hmm. Florida, 707,000 people. Moving in—that's the population 
change. That's the increase in population. North Carolina, 260,000. Arizona, 208,000. Georgia, 201,000. South Carolina, 164,000. Tennessee, 141,000. Utah, 109,000. Idaho, 100,000. Mm. So all the major increases in states. You know, you look at the top of the states that were over six figures, all of them are Republican states. Yeah. On the other end, the massive states that had losses, over 100,000. Illinois, 230,000. California, minus a half a million, 509,000. New York, 524,000. You know, we... we uh, especially with New York, you pair that with the cost of living where 100000 is now closer to the value basically is 35000 mm-hmm. Uh in New York. It's like making 35000 Then you you look at that equation, all right, what all's involved? Well, if you're going to tax business, business is going to move. If business is going to move, jobs are going to move. If jobs are going to move, people move. I would like – that disparity is so great. I have questions about their methodology. On the 100,000 being a 35,000? On the 100,000 being 30, 35,000, well, for they, example, in New York City, and being, for example, in Oklahoma City, <clears throat> you know, uh, 85,000, where there's a $50,000 uh, difference. Again, I'm not saying it's not true. I would like to see the well, methodology of how they did that. And they did say taxes and cost of living. So yes, there is a yes. there is an income tax for the city of New York and the state of New York. Right. In Oklahoma, it's one state income tax. So, you right. know, they don't have Oklahoma City does not have a city income right. tax. Well, and I and well, you know, the, I think not that that explains all of it. No, but. the majority would have to be cost of living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And and so, you know, you can look at it. And if you look at New York City, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I, you know, I love I love uh, the uh, the uh, U2 guy. We've talked about before, Cash Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love watching it. I love watching people that live completely different lives that I, that, that I, than I do with fascination of how they, you know, of, of how they survive and how they do it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things I look at that I watch all the time and people say, oh, you want to do that? No, I'm just interested in people who do it. I have no interest in it myself. I have no interest in living in New York City, but he's a, you know, realtor there and going through all the different apartments. I'm fascinated by the places that people live in in New York City mm-hmm. and what it costs. Yeah, yeah. And I was telling that to my dad yesterday. I said, Dad, it's incredible because I'll sit there and this guy will walk through an apartment. I'll go, okay, that's nice. I could live there. Mm-hmm. You know, that that would be that'd be a comfortable place, even though it's in a high rise, whatever. That would be a comfortable place. What is that per month? 9000 <laughs> Are you yeah. out of your mind? Yeah. And, and it might be 1,500 square feet. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's a nice place. And uh, I, I love the the one they did one time. He went in, the, this one girl basically lives in a closet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like 90, I'm not kidding, mm-hmm. 90 inches by like 70 inches. That's mm-hmm. her apartment. It's a closet. Mm-hmm. And you walk in and you, she could sit down. There's like a little, you know, a nice soft chair. Mm-hmm. There's the, uh, you know, a, a, a small sink microwave small refrigerator mm-hmm. a tv up there and then you know where does she sleep there's a loft above it you know we and that's it and she has to cross the hall to go to the bathroom you know to use the shower and go to the bathroom and that was like two thousand dollars a month 
a sandwich bag for her trash. Yeah. I, by the way, I'm not exaggerating that at all. There's mm-hmm. no exaggeration. This thing, my walking closet mm-hmm. off my master bath, and I don't live in a huge house or anything, mm-hmm. but my walking closet is bigger, is probably twice the size of the apartment. Yeah. And she said, well, I'm trying to save money. It's like, wow. Uh, I don't know if there was any windows. I can't remember if there was any window. If there was like a little tiny window maybe up above the uh, the, the the loft, which she only mm-hmm. had maybe, you know, two feet of headroom. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. it's not like she can sit up in bed and, and read a book. And I'm like, wow. And you just, and so you look at that cost itself and you say, well, does that extrapolate out? I mean, how do you get that? You know, Oklahoma City is cheaper. Is it $50,000 cheaper? I'd like to see. I just want to see the methodology of that. You know, and they're not a government. They're not. It wasn't a it wasn't a Republican uh, study that was done. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a commercial study that was done by Smart Asset. Mm -hmm. So you'd be willing to see, Okay, break, just break it down. Break it all down to me. I'd like to see that. Well, and also all things being equal in Oklahoma City, you're going to own a car. Not necessarily, though, in New York City. No, that's no, that's a great point. So if yeah. they said, well, this is what you would pay daily for parking and this is what you would pay for uh, gas and, and wear and tear on your vehicle and, and driving and stop and go traffic for you. I don't know if they figured that in, then, well, but do most people, if you live in New York City, do most people own a, a car? car? Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, there there'd be a number of things that might not apply. Right. You you can't you can't do you can't in a way do apples to apples. Right. You know, that right. everybody has got the exact same things because in Oklahoma City you probably would own a car, which would yes. make it more expensive. So if you extrapolate that out to owning a car and living in New York City when most people don't, then that would not be a a accurate portrayal of the average lifestyle. Right. It might be an accurate portrayal of if you owned a car in New York. Well, then- I, it, it, I I would be curious to get into the breakdown of it, though. The the fees, right, in mm-hmm. a New York City and, and all of that. So, uh, and commuter costs. Let's just say, okay, uh, we didn't factor in owning a car in New York City. It was all uh, public transportation or taxis or just commuting in general, the cost of commuting. And I, I don't know if they did an average cost, you know, but I would love to see the breakdown on the gov- the cost of government and the fees and everything else that you pay. You know, one of the things that, that we look at is, you know, is the cost of living in, in certain areas, but it is the policies that you put in place. So it is the cost, the total cost of government, not just the income tax. Uh, if a state or city has an income tax, it is the fees and everything else that is added to the cost of living there. And we've talked about that for many years in New York and in uh, uh, California. San Francisco uh, came up just the other day. Uh, there are people leaving San Francisco. You look at the um, Silicon Valley thing. You and I touched on a story. It was a uh, a few weeks ago, and I can't remember if it was Business Insider uh, that did the article that talked about the leasing of building space, that if you look at the tech industry in San Francisco, 
and, you know, the Silicon Valley, you look at, at a number of people that over the, the past few years and companies, big and small, that have left. And so there was a, a ton of uh, open leasing space mm-hmm. in those buildings. And there's a reason, again, there's a reason for that. The cost of living, it's not just that they go after business, but it's a perpetual thing that if you if you increase the cost of living and crime is on the rise, fewer people want to live there. So companies need the talent pool. They want to be in a place where people love to live, and they and that's part of the attraction. Hey, come here, uh, work for us. It's a great area, you know, and all that. Um, but it's also the you know cost of living. It has to be amenable to uh, moving from another location, possibly another state, to that area. Austin is one right now in Texas that is on fire. But you listed a whole number of you know cities there that uh, with the very low cost of living uh, right. in our state of Texas, but but also in the South. I mean, you you look at where the migration is in those states in Arizona, Texas, and Florida that are are killing it of people going there. And why is that? Because the cost of living and also the 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 treatment of business. Come here, we're going to let you make a profit. We're going to nurture that environment so that our economy can grow and maintain strong as a, and stay strong as a state. 866-90-RED-EYE. We'll be right back with more Red Eye Radio with Eric Harley and Gary McNamara. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Harley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 86690-RED-EYE. Uh, we'll tell you about the ex-Black Lives Matter activist who says the San Francisco reparations plan is gaslighting uh, black people. Hmm. This is an ex-Black Lives Matter activist, which is interesting. It's like, so you've gone from a, you know, that to more of a conservative in this short of a time. That's, hmm. uh, that's an evolution. Hmm. Uh, and also, uh, Senator John Warner, I don't know if you saw him asking, uh, yelling yesterday about, uh, you know, this is the first, you know, basically Internet bank run because of rumors on the Internet about, you know, what was going on uh, here. And, you know, again, talking about whether talking about the possibility of censorship of anything that would cause a bank run. And we covered this a little bit yesterday and we said, well, no, the problem is here. Nobody believes the administration. Right. Anything the administration. You need to censor the federal government. Well, that's the thing is that when you take risk out of the equation, the Internet is not the problem. Right. When you take risk out of the equation, then expect banks to act accordingly because we've been asking, all right, what happened at SVB? Did they have, Was again, was it uh, unique to that bank and that uh, it was a different type of banking culture? Or did they just walk around going, look, if something happens, federal government is going to bail us out. You take risk out of the equation and you've got a big problem and it's not the Internet.
This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. Now, it's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show. This is Red Eye Radio. All across America and around the planet, he's Eric Harley, I'm Gary McNamara. We are Red Eye Radio, so download our app today and you can listen when and where you want if you can't listen live overnight like many of you are right now. And thank you very much and happy St. Patrick's Day to you, or as the Irish call it, Amateur Day. Just, uh, Just imagine that Eric and I are sitting at the bar. Because we are. That's what we do. We're sitting at the bar, but uh, we're not drinking. You know, and so all of you that are are irritating us very, very quickly. <laughs> and so we're going to get up and leave. No, no, no. We're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here. Yeah, I don't. I'm trying to think. I don't know, except for when I was very young and playing in bars i was underage i always had to have a chaperone because i wasn't of age to be there so i couldn't really actually go into the bar i had to stay in one area and have my chaperone there (laughs) i couldn't and so and i didn't drink but i was thinking have i ever just hung out in a bar where and then i didn't drink aside from that not really i don't drink anymore but uh, yeah i Probably wouldn't be sitting at a bar. It would have to have really, unless they had really great food. But that's a bar or restaurant. I only drink to excess. No. Yeah. Well, what good is it if you don't wake up the next day going, okay, how much money do I owe and who who do I owe it to? <laughs> what, what, seriously, what just, what just happened? <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, you, you know, when I worked at one bar, mm-hmm. I never knew it, but I was, this is during college again, mm-hmm. uh, I was the beer chugging champion. Oh. Nobody ever beat me. Right. I don't know how I could do it, but I could chug a beer. I would only do it once a night. And just the one beer. Just the one beer. Yeah. But, I, but people would challenge me every single night. Yeah. At, would you have friends... That would invite someone to challenge you. In other words, oh, you got to hey, you yeah, got to take oh, on yeah, this guy all that the happened? time. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah, because that's what I'm picturing in my yeah. mind. Hey, Gary, and, Gary, come on, you got a and, new challenger. And there were bikers that came into the bar. Yeah, and and one time they they you know <laughs> they had heard about nobody could beat this guy, and probably like seven or eight bikers came in, and the the sound booth was behind the bar, like mm-hmm. it was a corner. It was the, the, the bar went in a, you know, sort of a U-shape, whatever, and the bar, right. or the the the, uh, the sound booth was behind the bar up. Okay. But there were steps that came yeah, down. Yeah, okay, I see, yeah. So yeah, everybody yeah, could yeah. yell at you, hey, could you right. play yeah. this? Could you play right. that? Yeah, I've been in one of those. Yeah. I've worked those and, before, yeah. And so I, all of a sudden I heard clank, and it was, you know, like, what's that? And it was the, <laughs> these bikers come in the door and put their helmets down there and said, all right, 
who's that beer chugging champion? I'm like, oh boy, yeah. And there I won. Go. I, I won, and that's how I got respect of the bikers. <laughs> you know, I did. I had mentioned my buddy Jerry earlier when we were talking about. You know, he works for a small regional bank, and right. just I, I, you can go back to our podcast tomorrow if you didn't hear it. The first part of the show when we uh, we started, I talked about you know his message last night about you know just about small banks and you know he works for a small bank and regional bank and how important they are and basically they're the, they're the ones that are getting screwed over. Yeah, Jerry yeah. is also the same guy that when I tr- then and we were working at the bank together. This is during college. And I've told the story before. Some of you might not have heard it, because it's a great story. Um, so I, I, uh, he told me, he goes, hey, they have an opening at this one, this one bar. I said, okay, yeah, to spin, you know, spin tunes. Okay, I'll do it. And so I went to try out, and they were going to try me out at midnight. They said, we well, come on in at midnight. We'll try you out. You do an hour, and we'll see how you do. All right. So I got up there, and I had it all prepared. And the, you know, at midnight came along and, you know, I was, I said, hello, everybody. Because I still hadn't gotten out of puberty. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, <laughs> but <laughs> I can't remember what I said, but the first song right at midnight was the, the band Trooper from Canada. You hear the song all the time if you go to any NHL hockey game mm. and it's Raise a Little Hells, the, yeah, the song. Yeah, right. It's yeah. a very Detroit kind of, you know, rock pop song. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the number one song in Canada. And we were at the border, so everybody knew the song. And when I started playing it, the whole place went bonkers. I mean, they it was almost as if a riot was taking place. Mm. But, I mean, nobody was violent, but they were jumping up and down. I mean, it was like Animal House. Yeah. Right. That's what it was like. Right. And it was that way for the entire hour. And I'll never forget... I, I, uh, you know, come down out of the sound booth, the owner's there and the manager, and he looks at me and he says, you're the best damn DJ I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anything like that ever. You're hired. So my buddy Jerry, who I talked about, he was there. He's the one that told me to, you know, to apply at that bar. Right. For the sound man job. So I go up and I said, I did great. I did great. He goes, no, you didn't. I bought everybody in the bar shots. For the hour before you went on the air, he goes, you owe me about, I don't know, 50 bucks, 60 bucks. <laughs> well, that was a lot back in 1976. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, so I got the job because you bribed the customers. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories because I was like so proud of myself. He goes, nah, dude, you didn't do it. I bought everybody. I said, look, my buddy's going to be up there spinning tunes at midnight. You go crazy when he starts. Yeah. Here's a shot. Buy shots. Right. Now, you think that was a dangerous play. It wasn't a Tuesday night because Tuesday night, I'm not kidding you, Tuesday night was five shots for a buck. Oh, all right. Wow. (laughs) Holy cow. I don't know if I would advertise that in the litigious society we live in today if I was a bar owner. Yeah. Even five shots for five bucks, I probably would not actively promote. Well, I remember... In the uh, late 80s, early 90s, we would advertise on in radio. We'd have clubs that advertised uh, 99 cent or 50 cent well drinks mm-hmm. for a certain period of time or all night or ladies night where 
ladies, don't pay a cover and I think drink at one point in one establishment, drink free all night. Well, it was so that guys would go there and spend right. money. Right, exactly. Right. Alcohol aside, <laughs> could you advertise that in today's society of, wait a minute, what do you mean you're, this is, you're bringing women in so that, and and treating them, giving them, you know, alcohol or free cover or whatever it is, no cover charge, so that men can come in and hit on them. How dare you? I just think to myself, my gosh, that seems like another planet. Yeah, they never, in Texas, I think there's a law against really promoting specials like that, I believe. There is now. Yeah, there is now. There is I now. Mean, because there is, they, they, oh, they haven't done any anything like right. that since yeah, cause probably the early 90s. Because you, you turn to some of the sports stations that mm-hmm. still play the <clears throat> gentleman clubs commercials, mm-hmm. and they don't say, hey, great drinks. Mm-hmm. They say, hey, the ladies will be out, and there's a free buffet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Naked bodies and free buffet. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think yeah, so. No, yeah. <laughs> Mm-mm. Mm-mm. One or the other. No. <laughs> Alcohol no, you can promote. In fact, put more clothes on than you usually wear <laughs> yes. when you're around my food, please. <laughs> and a hairnet and gloves. And yes. <laughs> a mask would be nice. A mask. <laughs> I don't want any of... And no. 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 Uh-uh. No. I've seen that advertised before, and I, I think, well, no. <laughs> what are you doing? Put your clothes on. Sir, do you know where you are? I don't care. I'm having dinner. If you call that dinner. <laughs> I don't even know what they serve, and I don't want to know, frankly. Yeah, no, I, I think about those times, and I think <laughs> that was a it was a totally different universe. Because yeah, I, 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 I was watching some things. Somebody has put a ton of compilation clips on YouTube together. Norm MacDonald and... Uh, Jokes you couldn't tell, basically the, the jokes you couldn't tell today. And a lot of it from his SNL days on SNL uh, Weekend Update. Uh, but a lot of things that you couldn't that you couldn't do today. And, you know, and then I think about, okay, just watching an old sitcom. We talk a lot about Seinfeld, tons of Seinfeld rep- references here on the show. But you you look at that. And you go back to the, I was watching something that's not as old as Seinfeld, King of Queens. Oh, yeah. Reruns. Mm-hmm. And there were a few jokes, and I was going, mm, that would not go through. It, it, we're talking network TV. That would definitely not happen on network TV today. And and you think about it, and it is a totally different culture. I mean, our sensibilities have changed drastically because oh well and it all started with well that's offensive this is offensive you know and i heard somebody a a stand-up comedian do a joke and it was from years ago it was from 93 or 94 it was like oh you definitely can't say that today there's no way unless you're dave Chappelle. yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) well the best bar commercial that i ever 
I ever heard, and I say it, the best bar commercial I ever heard because it's the only one mm-hmm. I remember 45 years later. Yeah. That me and my buddies will still say to each other, and it, we all understand and we burst out laughing. There was a bar in, in, in Buffalo on Hurdle Avenue in Buffalo called Gables, mm. and they were running radio ads. And there was like a beat beneath it with a guy sort of, I don't know if he was sort of rapping or just talking, but it was mm. <laughs> meet your future wife at Gables, Gables, meet your future wife at Gables, Gables. And we all remember it. I mean, 45 years later, that's the one bar commercial that we heard on the radio that we remember. Wow. Now, I don't think anybody was going to that bar for their future wife, <laughs> which made it so unusual. I'm going to get drunk and meet a woman. And my, yeah. my future wife, I don't know. Do I want to make that commitment well, are, are, <laughs> by I mean, walking into the, well, the door of that bar? If you're starting, if, you, if your ambitions... To have a family start with going to a ball. <laughs> maybe a reset is needed and you think to yourself, maybe I, I don't know, take a few years to myself and do something. And then I decide to do, maybe go somewhere else and, I don't know, start your family. Now, see, one of the best songs ever written about a bar was actually by Johnny Resnick and the Goo Goo Dolls, mm-hmm. Broadway, which is actually the strip of bars on Broadway mm-hmm. that we used to go to when I was a steel worker. Right. And all those bars were right there right. On, uh, on Broadway. And when he says, see an old man sitting, we see a young man sitting at an old man's bar waiting for his turn to die. Mm. And I've been in those bars and that fit the culture perfectly. The old guys were at the bar, the other you know young people would come in and then you'd see the slow evolution over the years where they... Where when yeah. Resnick when Resnick sang that I went, I relate to that. I it, relate to that. The only setting that I've where I've uh, and I've been to those bars too, where it's like okay, you know, you belly up to the bar and you're just sitting there. You know, it, yeah. it's not there's no music going on. Uh, you're not hanging out with a group of friends and and all laughing. And it, it's just a bar where just people just belly up to the bar. You order, you sit, and you drink. Uh I've been to, I don't know, in my life, I guess, I don't know how many, but the only time I've actually done that, where I've just bellied up to a bar and had a beer, is at an airport, and that's only been once or twice. You know, where you just sit down, because I was just looking for a place to sit down, you know, and it's interesting when you walk into some of those older bars and tavern-type things and many people will be going to them tonight don't drink and drive please uh but there there are people that will hang out and they just and they're really not doing much you know movies are representative of that was Mm. uh barfly with mickey rourke Mm. which we still my buddies and i still do it today yeah where he sits there and he's got some cash he's in the bar and he raises it he buys everybody a drink and he goes to all my friends Mm. nobody is his friend (laughs) yeah right yeah but it's like yeah yeah and then what was one i can't think what was the one with steve buscemi and you ever see that one where he was oh he went to the bar i can't remember Mm. the name of that bar movie and it was, I mean, it was like, you looked at it, you go, it's a pitiful place. Right, yeah. But he was great. I can't remember what that bar well, the I, the no, was. No, I mean, I've had uh, and still have friends, you know, that have worked uh, and and work in the bar and restaurant 
industry, and you'll find that the the individuals that that work there and the individuals that go there are it, it's they know each other. They you know you get to know people. Yeah, and it's kind of their hangout because they oh, sit no. and talk with each no, other. The, 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 it's a very no. close knit community. Really, the, the, the corner bars, for example, in the Black Rock section of New York, where my buddy Jeff's uh, grandfather had a bar. Yeah. His uh, his uh, father, my buddy Jess, his father was a police officer. His grandfather owned a bar and was a bookie. Yeah, uh, true story. <laughs> but uh, the the bar around the corner from that Casey's, I mean, and there was like a community of people. They were community bars. It wasn't the same thing, for example, mm. as Barfly or the Steve Buscemi movie is Trees Lounge. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but they were actually places, and you know, great fish fries. Home cooked meals all the time. They actually were a community get together. Yeah, and yeah. kids would be in there eating in the back with their parents. It wasn't like a wild place or a depressing right, right, place, right? Uh, at all. But there are some of those bars that were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. mm-hmm. So happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yeah. Don't drink and drive. Call an Uber, would you? Eight six six ninety Red Eye. Lines open for your calls. Eight six six ninety Red Eye on Red Eye Radio. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Carlin. I'm Gary McNamara, 86690-RED-EYE. You know, we talked about the other day how Senator Mark Kelly in Arizona, when uh, talking to the Treasury Department, brought up again, you know, the you know uh, the censorship issue because of, you know, possible bank runs. Mm. I want to play this from, uh, this is Senator Mark Warner yesterday with Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen. He's dancing all around that also. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. The one thing, though, that I, I worry about, whatever regulatory system we had in place. Um, The other half of what happened, that happened sometime between Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, where we've seen now the very first social media, internet-based bank run. Um, To put this in any kind of comparison, when WAMU failed, the largest bank failure in our, our country's history, $16 $16 billion coming out over a 10-day period. I'm not sure what regulatory system anywhere, no matter how much capital, no matter how many stress tests, that would have protected any institution from a $42 billion bank run in a single day. That literally at that point was $0.25 cents on the dollar of every dollar that was deposited. You know, I think we, most of us have all seen It's a Wonderful Life. Um, we realize that that money was off in small businesses and startup businesses around the country. question I have is, who was playing the role of Mr. Potter? I think there were some, and I, listen, I've got, been supportive of the venture capital community. I was a venture capitalist before, but I think there were some bad actors in the VC community who literally started to spur this run by virtually cry, crying fire in a crowded theater in terms of rushing all of these deposits out. And I'm not sure that we have anything in our existing regulatory structure. Uh, and I don't, and, and it's early on, and we need to figure out what happened and who missed this. But this notion that, you know, 25 cents on every dollar can. We'll get to more of what he had to say coming up.
The Bonus Show. And he's Eric Harley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 86690. Uh, right, I'm going to get back to playing uh, just uh, the last part of the audio I want to play of Senator Mark Warner. But this all relates to the fact that uh, when uh, Senator uh, Mark Kelly of Arizona brought up the possibility and you know of digital censorship because the you know run on the bank uh is uh is led by social media mm. creating a panic mark warner's trying to make the same case to janet yellen let's play the last uh, part of what he had to say to her can rush out in a single day and people who spur this online tuesday and wednesday night bear no responsibility and the hypocrisy of some who are who are libertarian until the stuff hits the fan and then want relief is, 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 is frankly a, um, more than a little repugnant. So early on, this is not normally within the traditional uh, banking regulatory, but I, I think this will go down as the, the history's first Internet-driven run. you have any initial thoughts on this? Well, you know, no matter how strong capital and liquidity supervision are, if a bank has an overwhelming run that's spurred by social media or whatever so that it's seeing deposits flee um, at that pace, um, a bank can be um, put at danger of failing, of course, there's backup liquidity, there's the Fed's discount window, um, but this is really can be a threat to banks. And one of the reasons we um, intervened and declared a systemic risk exception is because of the recognition there can be contagion in situations like this, and other banks can then fall prey to the same kinds of runs, which we certainly want to avoid. But this was a bank that had a very high ratio of uninsured depositors. Um, insured depositors um, and retail customers um, are usually, usually do not run. We tend um, not to see runs among insured depositors, but um, the liquidity requirements um, and needs of a bank with such heavy reliance on uninsured deposits that are runnable, I think we need to think about that. And, and I, I agree, and, and you know, in, in a, a complete concentration in an industry sector. But the the notion, and I, again, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a solution in mind yet. But the idea that uh, there is no responsibility for the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater, and forcing that run using technology as a mechanism to accelerate that, you know, presents a problem that I think. I hope we could all kind of put our heads jointly together on. Thank you. So he's talking about fire in the theater, which means he's talking about First Amendment thing. Right. Because that's the whole right. fire in the theater. Well, they were yelling fire in the theater. Why? There was a fire in the theater. Because fundamentals, yes, the fire actually exists. The fire was in the, the fire was in the theater. But it's a fact that you take that what he's doing, he's dancing around all the fact that the same what Mark Mark Kelly was doing the other day, censorship. The only thing these people can think of is any problem that happens censorship censorship and i will say this for janet yellen as much watching her for the most part yesterday is like me trying to watch hillary or kamala harris speak it's just it's impossible for me to 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 do so i mean it's just like because they're just 
They dance around everything. She didn't dance around it there. She actually got to the point. Well, the problem here is she said, you don't see her run in the bank when people, you know, a regular bank where the vast majority of people have less than $250,000 in there and it's insured. Right. You only see her run in the bank because of the idiots. So many of these idiots in this bank where such a huge proportion of the money was uninsured. Right. Well, it doesn't matter whether the Internet existed or not. You're going to have a run on that bank. Right. Word of mouth will do it. But it's the fact that Warner doesn't look and say, okay, what did the bank do wrong? He's looking at this saying, well, the big problem we have to look at, because that was his major focus in the minutes that he had to speak, is the fact that the Internet exists and peop- there can be a free exchange of ideas and that's a problem for the banking industry. And she looked at him and basically said, well, no, it's not. This particular bank is different than the regular banking industry where regular people have their money insured. Well, and that's uh. it. Uh, because he brought up the fire in the theater. You don't have to have a, you know, the, the theater doesn't have to be fully engulfed. If someone yells fire and, and anyone sees flames, even in one small part of the theater, everybody's getting out of that theater for good reason, for real reason, and you hit on it. That's because right. there's a fire. And what he wants you to believe is that, well, nothing was going on fundamentally. Right. Someone yelled fire in a theater when there was no fire. That's not true. No, it's not. And that's But the first thing that comes to liberals' minds are censor, censor. Right. First right. Amendment's the problem. Right. First Amendment wasn't the problem. No. In fact, the call of screaming fire in the theater, I'll repeat again, as you just said, <laughs> and we've repeated this, there was a fire in the theater. You can, you, you're supposed to do that when there's a right. fire in the theater, and that, that, those are the very fundamentals that everybody has looked at. And when Janet Yellen is telling you that, she's not, at least in that regard, trying to spin this whole thing. No, you had a large uh, portion of those depositors were not insured. That's why they have the run on the bank. They need their money, and there is no insurance. And if it collapses, they get, their fear is they don't get it. Maybe the bank didn't have that fear, but the depositors right. did. Yeah. And by the way, that's on them. You shouldn't put it in. If you can't insure that money, if you cannot insure your funds... My question is, what were you doing? I mean, there's a ton of questions for the depositors that don't insure those funds. But they saw a fire. And if you're talking about investors and and look and and you know the the uh, uh, any any type of approach where they're going to assess. The fundamentals of a bank like that, I would argue that if they didn't yell fire, it could have been worse right. for a number of people. Well, a it, number of depositors. Look, 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 there there was no social media, but when George Costanza saw the fire in there, mm-hmm. uh, he cleared a path, shoving over old ladies or whatever. In order to get to the door to get out, that was the Eric the Clown episode, yeah. if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. John Favreau is Eric the Clown. Right. But when he <laughs> when he could stands at his way out of there, 
there was, you know, it was a small fire, but there was a fire right. and there was no, he reacted in that way and people will react whether social media exists or not. But it, again, it was almost like I'm sitting there watching this yesterday thinking to myself, the Democrats are just trying to think of any way. Well, I don't know what the solution is, but, you know, First Amendment, because he was bringing that this a fire in a, uh, that somebody was crying fire in a theater, screaming fire in a theater, and there wasn't one. Actually, there was one. There was. There was one. But why would he bring it up? Why would that be his first thought? Because that's what liberals are trying to find anything that they can attempt to convince the public that censorship and the government controlling your First Amendment rights is a solution to the problems that we face today. Instead of the fact of looking at, you want to censor people, stop the administration, for example, over the last two years from lying about inflation, including Janet Yellen. Right. When you build a a organization of the executive branch that is not credible on financial issues and has shown over and over again they are willing to lie about inflation and its effect and then continue the lies now to say, oh, people are seeing relief now, when it's obvious to everybody that the people that are communicating to you and to the United States, the fiscal health of this country and their pathological liars, don't be surprised when you go out there and say, Oh, there's no problem at all where people go, there must be a hell of a problem. Well, that's and that's it. Uh, we can add to it the botched exit of Afghanistan. And for yeah. months, this administration, the Taliban won't be taking over Afghanistan. The Taliban won't be. T- everything is fine. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. What about the Americans, not the service members, not just the service members? But the Americans living in Afghanistan were being told to lie. Everything is fine. Everything is fine. So in that regard, they didn't yell fire when there was a fire. Right. They didn't allow people to have the proper assessment of the situation. They, In fact, they lied about the situation. And as such, those, those Americans didn't have the information they needed uh, as to whether or not they were going to stay in Afghanistan. So the problem isn't the wrongdoing or the absolutely irresponsible action. And you can sit there and talk about it. You know, we're we're talking about people that decided to park their money in that bank, Eric. Mm -hmm. Millions of dollars. This wasn't because of a business. They were just parking their money there. Right. And that was being brought up the other day. Well, this isn't all people. We had the guy who called the other day. He said, you know, he did payroll through a bank that, Mm -hmm. you know, had used that, whatever. But that was all protected anyway. This wasn't the majority of that money. Right. Uh, right. the most the, the huge amounts of money they were protecting were people were absolutely ir- who the hell would put you know anybody who acquires any wealth always sits there and says okay what am i going to do with it okay what's safe right now you know treasury bills investments whatever mutual funds very rarely does anybody park 10 million in one account right you know you're, or 100 million in one account unless it's if it's a, a high net worth bank and you could Buy independent insurance outside FDIC. Yes, uh, an insurance yes. policy Absolutely. that would you know, yes. which which you right. can do. Right. Uh, I don't know that that was available to anybody at SVB or whatever. But but you the the point is you ensure that the money is going to be there. Right. Otherwise, why why didn't you just put it in a safe? I mean, uh, my question is is that if you were worried about uh, why weren't you worried about that money just disappearing? 
up until the run on the bank that you made. Right. But the, the why the, didn't you protect yourself? The, the wrongdoing of the bank, the inept board of directors, the inept management, the inept regulatory agencies that are there. You know, we talked about this earlier uh, when uh, when to start off the show and just said, you know, Barney Frank had no business that these board of directors are not they're not putting these board of directors in some of these banks because of their banking qualifications. Right. They're putting them there as almost an elite entitlement. They have no business being there at all. Everything failed across the board. But you've got Mark Warner, Senator Mark Warner. Oh, the problem is your constitutional rights. Yeah. That's the problem. Right. The First Amendment is the problem. I don't know what to do with it. I'm right. not sure what the solution is. But yelling fire. And when he lied like that and said, you know, that's like yelling fire in a theater. That I call it a lie because he was implying that there was no fire in the theater. Right. There was a fire in the theater. That's yeah. why. Yeah. Because he was saying it was immoral what they were doing. How is it immoral if a venture capitalist says, oh, my God, I'm going to lose all my money because it's not insured. And he tweets that out. Well, that's, that's the thing. That's, is that, it's what, the truth. What are you going to do? You're going to then put a regulation on venture capitalists. They can't communicate. They can't yeah. put out uh, uh, assessments. Because think about that. Well, then shut down CNBC. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> If you're going to go that measure, then Jim Cramer shouldn't be on the air. Now, there are reasons why I think Jim Cramer shouldn't be on the air, but that isn't what I'm talking about. The government saying Jim Cramer shouldn't be on the air is very different. But I, it's, it, but I think he's inept, but if that's, you know, again, that's if you're going to apply that and, and when they say, well, we, I hope we can all come together. That means regulation, which means controlling free speech, which there's no way it doesn't get beyond venture capitalists. It would have to get to the media. It would have to get to anyone who's posting anything that has any following whatsoever on social media. Let's not actually look at the problem that exists. Right. Let's take away people's constitutional rights. Right. That's yeah. how liberalism, that's how the Democrats think. That's how. That's what Mark Warner was thinking. That's what Kelly was thinking. Right. 866-90-RED-EYE. Get in touch with Red Eye Radio, toll free at 866-90-RED-EYE. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Carley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 866-90-RED-EYE. Uh, uh, um, I, I, it, just, it just drives me crazy, though, with, with Warner doing that. And, and I was, you know, after Mark Kelly did it the other day, and then there was a back and forth. Well, maybe it wasn't Mark Kelly. Maybe it wasn't. No, Democrats. Mm. And then, you know, Warner saying that. I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah, come on. Right. I, and I yeah. hope it's recognized by the Republicans that here they are. They don't want to look at the people that are to blame. This is across the board. You know, it's like talking about my buddy Jerry and who works for the, uh, you know, works for a small regional bank saying, you know, there are so many solid small and regional banks out there that provide such a service. He's been in the banking business for over 50 years. And, and you know, they've got to take the hit for the irresponsible actions of, of, of a few who get bailed out. And meanwhile, because of the regulatory uh, things that, that, the government does makes those small and regional banks less competitive. 
Yeah. And it's just right. like, it, it, and here in this case, no, it's your First Amendment rights. That's the problem. Yeah. People talking. Yeah. Yeah. This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. Now, it's Red Eye Radio. Gary McNamara and Eric Harley talk about everything from politics to social issues and news of the day. Whether you're up late or you're just starting your day, welcome to the show. This is Red Eye Radio. All across America and around the world, we are Red Eye Radio. Download our app today. Listen to when and where you want. If you can't listen live to Red Eye Radio overnight. All right. So I just, I love some of the reaction. Most of it on social media is, you know, pretty, uh, pretty hilarious. So the, uh, now that San Francisco, the, the, uh, the board there, the, has said, well, yeah, well, we're seriously consider the five million in reparations plus huh. the ninety seven thousand dollars of guaranteed income for two hundred and fifty uh, years, all debt uh, forgiveness, and we'll give you a house for a dollar. Uh, and <laughs> we did the other. We did a couple of days ago, just very quickly, the the financing in our head, and said, well, okay, uh, roughly be about just for the. Just for the five million reparations alone would be two hundred and fifty billion. Well, what's the budget actually of uh, of uh, San Francisco? Right, fourteen billion. Well, that can't happen. All right, how much would it be per household? Six hundred thousand dollars they'd have to pay. It's like, well, that's not that's not going to happen. So mostly you've gotten mockery out of it. That's that's what you've got because it isn't going to to happen and it shows the unseriousness because think about it all the the board and anybody in san francisco is promoting this they know it's not going to happen but it makes them feel better now we did say the one positive of this is the recognition of liberals in san francisco how racist and bigoted they have been where the guilt is so large inside of themselves where they're coming up with amounts that could never happen because that makes them feel good. That takes away a little bit of their guilt that they feel for the bigotry as liberals that they practice each and every day through identity politics. Right. So that recognition that liberals understand we're the racist, we're the bigots, we're the ones that judge people by groups and not individuals – and therefore, we're so evil that there need to be reparations for that. That is refreshing that we know that liberals recognize uh, their racism and bigotry. Yeah. So that's good. Right. Yes. Now, uh, some of the response has been interesting. On Fox News yesterday was former Black Lives Matter activist Xavier uh, Durosseau, uh, who was on. He now uh, works for uh, Dennis Prager's group that uh, does those the videos. The, yeah, conser- right. the, uh, the conservative advocacy group. So, uh, you know, his mind has been uh, changed. He's now a uh, conservative. And he was asked whether, uh, you know, whether this was ever going to come or whether this was going to be, um, you know, uh, whether, the, whether this would ever, ever come to fruition. 
Here we go. Absolutely. This is never going to actually happen. It is so unrealistic to think that the average family in San Francisco is going to be able to pay $600,000 extra a piece. And, you know, when people look at this list of the things that they're recommending, the most alarming thing for most is the $5 million going to each black person. But for me, as an American, I'm looking at this list and I see that they're wanting to sell homes at $1 to black Americans. As an American and as someone who used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's disgusting to me that we are more focused on slavery, which ended in 1860 then we're focused on the veterans who are on the streets of San Francisco, homeless and begging for spare change in 2023. That's where they need to start sending their money. Uh, he also said this is uh, 111 ways to gaslight black Americans into thinking we need to be dependent on a system of handouts in order to be uh, uh, successful. Hmm. So. Interesting. Yeah. For, uh, former. Uh, reformed Black Lives Matter activist. Hmm. That would be an interesting conversation to have yeah. with him because I my, my thing to be all right. What was the one idea that changed your mind? Well, I mean, we well, know. No, excuse me, not the one. Yeah. What was the first idea that you heard that made you think I'm on the wrong path here? Or uh, could it also be the organization itself? Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and we saw that with uh, uh, there were a handful of individuals that made the news that were involved early on and then said, OK, this is what I thought it was. Uh, so I'm not sure, but that is an interesting uh, some very interesting points being made here. And, and that is, you know, look, from. From outside looking in. Not being in San Francisco. You don't have to be. I asked the question, well, wait a minute. All right. You're saying you're going to pay for these. Uh, the, you're going to pay reparations uh, for these individuals. Now, what about other individuals who will tell you that they and their culture have been oppressed as well in San Francisco? I mean, we've talked about the miles-long uh, list of of possible lawsuits to come out of this. But the idea that, okay, we're going to make this payment and then keep making the, you know, um, monthly payments and everything else that we're going to do here. And are you saying that you're going to end oppression? Not just going back to slavery and not just about reparations from slavery but many in the african-american uh, community will tell you well no there are things today that are still wrong in fact one of them used to play ball in san francisco football so if you're if you're asking you know someone all right what do you think in the abstract, well, no, there should be something done to right the wrong. Well, but who, who is the victim and who is the oppressor? Well, all of these, again, these there's so many different levels of, of <laughs> questions that will lead to lawsuits the moment something like this is enacted. Are the questions, the very fundamental questions as a society, 
that we've been asking for years. This is not the first time that the discussion on reparations has happened. It's just that they're moving in such a way. I actually enjoy the conversation because they pared it down to one city and said, okay, because we, we talked about it. It's, it's that conversation has been happening for a long time about reparations in general, but it's isolated now to San Francisco in a way that you can say, okay, well, here's the math. Okay. Here's what it would take. Here's the revenue that it would take, the money that it would take. And now who's responsible for paying it and who is eligible to receive it? And those questions are and will always be unanswerable. Well, I, I, I personally like the free market competition that seems to be going on with reparations. For example, uh, San Francisco saying $5 million, and that has made the state of California now up it from two hundred and twenty-three thousand to over three hundred thousand dollars for their reparations plan, and then uh, with the San Francisco plan, the uh, the uh, the free market competition continues. Where California now you have the push to say, well, this should just shouldn't go to California residents. We should offer this to bring people back to California, and yeah. and so we believe that. We believe in the concept of federalism where states and uh, localities can have their own home rule. They get to decide what they wish to do. Therefore, therefore, you have 50 different states and a bunch of different experiences. And even though that we believe this policy is insane, mm-hmm. we believe that they should be able to do this if that's what they wish to do. And I would like to see a city like San Francisco go through on this start paying out the money, and see the manure show that results in this and the huge liberal circular firing squad and the the results of a bankrupt city when people leave. You know, it's like to fund the police. I, it's, it's amazing. I've been going on YouTube a lot recently and watching how the local TV stations for example, in Portland, Oregon, are covering the downtown area. It's fascinating to it's watch that. fascinating yeah. to watch yeah. it because you would think that the only criticism is coming from, you know, conservatives mm. outside of Portland. Right. That's not the case. Right. Not the case at all. And when you see how some of the locals are, the local media is covering it, especially the TV stations, and you witness some of the, you think some of these sections, you're in a third world country. Yeah. And they talk about inside of Portland, the destruction of it. But uh, again, what you're getting in, in Portland is what the people voted for. It's what they said they wanted. Everyone else, not everyone else, but so many stood on the sidelines saying, well, that's like saying I don't believe in gravity anymore. Right. And so I'm just going to step off the cliff, and then you fall down. You go, what's going on? This shouldn't happen. I fell down. Right. Well, gravity. Yeah, but I want to pretend that gravity doesn't exist. I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity. Gravity. <laughs> Why is gravity bringing me down? <laughs> gravity is racist. Yeah. Gravity is part of the patriarchy. Therefore, I mean, everything else is, it's, why not, why not throw it? And, and so they, 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 they decided to throw out all the laws of, 
of human nature, mm-hmm. of of science, of economics, which is incentive. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, okay, let's demonize the police. The police are gone. What does economics say? I can rob that store. I have a huge incentive to do so. Mm. Why? I won't be caught. Yeah. I can do that. I can destroy my downtown. I can become, oh, the one good story is, remember we played that audio of the homeless woman that said it's so easy to be homeless? Oh, yeah, yeah, remember yeah. Remember we played yeah, that audio? Yeah, yeah. There was actually, I read a story yesterday, actually some good news. Uh, she apparently, in that interview or another interview, another part of it that got uh, that got uh, uh, broadcast said, well, no, it's really, really hard, and I wish I wasn't here, but it's very easy to be homeless. But it's her, her siblings saw it. She has like 10 siblings. Mm. She now is getting the care that that that, uh, Good. that she needs. Oh, that's a great and story. So that was, great and so she's, she's off it, and there's a picture of like, uh, it I, looks like her brothers. It, it yeah. wasn't all her, her siblings. I think she's mm. one of 10. Yeah. In there, and they said they they've been wanting to help her, and they can't. They just couldn't reach her, and finally she had enough. And again, in these particular cases, we you know you know, and I've had experience. I don't want to go into the details with homelessness. Mm, Yeah, you know that has been been close to me. That has been tragic. In in some case, uh, in in, uh, one case, yeah, but uh, very rewarding in another one. Who is another uh, uh, person I know very close to me who is no longer. Uh, a homeless and is is slowly rebuilding their life. Yeah, the other yeah. one died being homeless, and yeah. so, um, you know, I've I felt it. It's been very, 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 very close to mm-hmm. me, and it was homelessness by choice. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was homelessness by choice, right. not because of economic situations. Right, and and so there's a whole different. You know, I remember I remember when Reagan said that. Uh, I think it was Reagan said people can be homeless by choice, and he was eviscerated for it. Mm. I know that's actually the case. Yeah, there are people that choose to be, uh, uh, you know, that choose to be homeless that actually have other options. Right. And, sure. But but when you look at it and you see the some of the the ten cities that they have down there, it's a nightmare. And how close they are to the houses. I mean, they're right yeah. on people's. You know, if if you look at the abatement in front of your house, mm. what if that was right in front of wherever you live, and all that was tents mm-hmm. and people living there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and the, they were talked about the rat situation. Rats mm. now because of the the people out in tents and you know the the the, the food out there the yeah. the unsanitary conditions mm. and rats all over the place yeah. and these neighborhoods are going what in the world's going I mean they are sing, liberalism is single handedly destroying the city of Portland Oregon yeah it's it's just it's incredible and everybody knows it inside there I mean it's not like it's hidden and nobody's talking about oh, it oh no it's they're, it's it is they're talking about it it is the existence I mean I was going to say it's the story it's not even the story it's just it is the picture of what's going yep. on in Portland, and, undeniable. And I was a resident of Portland. I mean, I lived a little bit away from downtown. Yeah. But I lived actually in Portland. I was a yeah. resident citizen of Portland, Oregon. I love I love Oregon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love Oregon. Yeah. And I think anybody knows when I work there, I love it. I One of the things that I'm blessed with is wherever I've worked in radio, it's become home. Mm-hmm. And I go to those cities and I'm autom- – you know, you, you go to a city and you're like, oh, where do I go? Or you just have that feeling. Mm-hmm. I go to so many – there's so many different cities that I worked in. As soon as I land there, yeah. it's like I'm home. I'm right. home. Mm-hmm. I'm home. I've got this home. That's a great feeling to have, and I always mm-hmm. had that with Portland. Even understanding the insanity of the 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 far left socialist anarchists that exist there, it is there's so many good people there, yeah. and it's such a, a a great place. And to see what has happened in Portland, 
I don't. I, I'm not. I don't gloat over it because I'm a conservative. I'm heartbroken for the people of Portland. No, it is heartbreaking. And and I met uh, uh, a young lady who uh, was driving me to the airport at an event after an event, and she talked about moving from Portland, having to leave her brother behind, and he was going through a number of issues, and she was trying to help him, and but she couldn't get him to help himself. And so she felt helpless, and she said, I had, I had to get out of there before we both were drowning. And she's helping her mother get out of there, and they're from that area. They're from there. And she says, it's heartbreaking to leave, and it's heartbreaking to leave my brother behind. And But I'm just going to have to be stronger somewhere else if I'm going to ever be able to help him. I've got to be strong myself. You know, if the... Mm-hmm. If the mask drops, put your mask on first before you help someone else. And that's the, you know, that's what it comes down to for a, a lot of people. They have to leave that. And it's sad. It really is tragic. It really is. Yep. But there was no other possible co- conclusion or consequence. I mean, these are the consequences when you enact those policies. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, we, knew, and, we knew it was going to happen. And it's not going to change until there is a right. monumental shift. And I don't see that in our lifetime nope. politically. 86690 Red Eye. Hi, I'm Jen Loomis, a transport safety expert at JJ Keller. And I'm here to share a tip on compliance, safety, accountability. Compliance, safety, accountability, or CSA, is the FMCSA safety compliance and enforcement program. Its goal is to hold motor carriers and drivers accountable for highway safety and to reduce crashes, injuries, and fatalities on our roads. CSA does this by assessing the safety performance of motor carriers and drivers based on data collected during roadside inspections, crash reports, and FMCSA investigations. Based on the data that is compiled, motor carriers are assigned a score. The carrier is then grouped with other carriers who have had a similar number of safety events. Carrier scores within the group are then ranked to determine intervention priority. Low scores are better, so carriers with the highest scores are those that are most likely to be targeted for intervention by the FMCSA. Interventions range in severity and may include warning letters, roadside, off-site, or on-site inspections, civil penalties, or operation out-of-service orders. This tip was brought to you by J.J. Keller & Associates. Visit us at jjkeller.com. We'll be right back with more Red Eye Radio with Eric Harley and Gary McNamara. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Harley and I'm Gary McNamara, 86690 Red Eye. Wow. Three years ago yesterday was the official 15 days to slow the spread. We're going to flatten the curve, everybody. 15 days to flatten the curve started three years ago yesterday. All right. Yeah. um, We're still working on that, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. Just, I, I just saw that and I went, wow. That was just... Well, and from the Three weight years. that I've gained it, during COVID, I'm now trying to flatten my own curves. <laughs> On your smart speaker, say, play Red Eye Radio. And, if you're really nice, she might. Red Eye Radio. And he's Eric Carley, and I'm Gary McNamara, 866-90-RED-EYE, uh, if you'd like to get in. Now, this was fascinating, because I, we always talk about what the numbers are. Mm. We've we've talked about the state of college today, but how many fewer people are going to college now than maybe 10 years ago? You know, And the stats are coming out. Wall Street Journal had an article, more students now are turning away from college and towards apprenticeships. Apprenticeships are up 50% in 10 years. College, uh, those going to college, hmm. uh, let me see here, down, I think it was 15%. Hmm. There you go. Uh, and they they go through all the different, uh, you know, they, they're talking to different people out there, but then they give the actual... Uh, in the past decade, college enrollment has declined by 15%, while the number of apprentices have increased by more than 50%. According to federal data, and Robert Lehman, the labor economist at the Urban Institute and co-founder of Apprenticeships for America. Now, we knew this was going to happen because it all comes down to what return on investment is. Are you, is, are, are you, are you teaching something that will give a person a skill that they will look at and say, okay, I can make money out of this, or mm. are colleges becoming brainwashing institutions of gobbledygook? <laughs> when you think about it, are, are gobbledygook one hundred and one? Gobbledygook one. Are, are you are you prepared to work in the real world if you go to college today? If you go to a, if if you go through everything that they're teaching there, the you know, as as we with a critical race theory, the liberal transgender activist movement, and the focus of that in every single curriculum. Yeah, right. We need to teach math with feelings. One and one equals three. Because I'm crying about it. <laughs> Eric, what is your what is, what is your feeling on this equation? It's sad. <laughs> what? Oh, well, why is it sad? Not sad that I'm sitting in a classroom with a bunch of morons. Uh, but I do wonder. Look, huh, if if you get a degree in finance, finance with feelings, and then go to work for Silicon <laughs> Valley Bank. Yeah. We've talked about that. I mean, I, what is coming out of the colleges in, in terms of individuals who are capable of going to work, being productive members of society? And look, they're, they're very smart people in the world. I'm not saying oh, they're all a bunch of morons and they're being – well, but the question is, are they learning the right things? Do they have all the skills? I don't have any 
doubt that the people at uh, Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, uh, are smart. I'm, I'm, I believe that they're smart people. Yeah. I saw the Do CEO. They, the CEO's vacationing. Uh, to, took two first class tickets to fly to Hawaii. So yeah, well, that's where you should yeah. be right now. Because yeah. if my bank were going under, I, that's not even going far enough. I would have been halfway across the world. I probably would have gone to New Zealand. But <laughs> I'd be in China. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so the the question comes: Are they learning the skills necessary? Not just the education. It's not whether or not they are in, intelligent, do they actually learn anything that can be applied in the real world, which has been the ongoing question, I think, for a number of years. Well, when you see here, they, they talk about companies, uh, uh, Google, Delta Airline, International mm. Business Machines, IBM, mm. have responded by dropping college degrees as requirements for more positions and shifting hiring to focus more on skills and experience. Pennsylvania has cut college degree requirements for some state jobs. Maryland has set a state goal of 45% of high school students starting a registered apprenticeship by 2031. It gets back to what eventually it gets back to the return on investment. Once you realize that there is no free lunch, because what will it take? We've talked about what will it take people to take certain jobs? People just don't want to take these particular jobs. Well, what will make them take their those jobs? Mm. It's the same thing that made people take those jobs that they didn't want 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. You have no other choice. Yeah, right. I had to go back to it because this is really old school. You don't work, you don't eat. Now people are saying, you are really, you're ancient, McNamara. You really are. Well, that's only because you're old. That's so cruel. <laughs> well, well, no, but I mean, there was, for me, and and I think a, a, a number of people, and I think it still exists to some extent, but I do wonder if our instincts are changing. Do people worry? Do they, do, do they have that instinctual, man, I've got to make sure I stay ahead of everything. Because you build out the pathology of dependency. Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And we've talked about it for years. But at some point, you're going to get to to uh, the degree of um, people being complacent, frankly. And and just saying, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm just going to live my life. It, it won't. I'm too big to fail, <laughs> along, <laughs> along with the banks. I'm too big to fail, and and those are the things that you know rewire the brain. I don't I don't have any doubt about that. That we don't have the same instinct. My maternal grandfather and grandmother had to travel around in Texas during the Great Depression. They had to go from town to town to find, so he could find work. And they moved a lot. They basically just went to where the job was. That's interesting because my brother, uh, years later, would actually commute out in West Texas when he was working out in the Permian Basin. He would commute hours a day. I mean, a long way because they, you know, the work isn't. They're not. They're not working right there in the town. They're working out in the field and. And so you 
but you did what you had. You always did what you had to do, and it was about knowing that I've got to feed my family. I've got to put shelter over my head. I've got that was an instinct that we've always had up until recently. I think. I I don't think and, it's completely gone. I just think that our survival instinct is not what it used to be. I you know I I, I think about. Uh, college and apprenticeships because here they talk about zurich north american an insurance firm said it hired 92 apprentices last year many right out of high school and and uh, from more than 800 uh, applicants most of the apprentices attended community college they're based in offices across the country they work stints in different departments such as underwriting claims audits statistical reporting it cybersecurity, uh reinsurance uh said the uh, uh head of the company's apprenticeship program and i started thinking to myself i know when i went to college and my two-year degree is in engineering and science so i got you know basically there and then i went into mass communications journalism the last two years which was completely useless i mean completely and totally useless Mm -hmm. and when i look back at college and i can look at and say okay if i'm going to be an engineer probably i need i need that technical knowledge you know you that technical knowledge you actually need to survive as an engineer and I said, and then, so part of my thought process was, okay, you need that if you go to a really great engineering school, mm. you go to a good engineering school, that's, that's good. And then I started thinking about business. I'm taking business in school. Well, and I'm just, I'm just using one person as an example for me to question it. And yeah, I've right. talked about uh, a young friend of mine, uh, Single mom, real early in life. Hmm. GED because of that. Single mom. No family support. Mm -hmm. Really, no family support at all. Problems in the family where there's no family support. In a period of 15 years has risen unbelievably through the ranks of business and has a GED. And I was messaging her the other day the other day because I haven't actually sat down and had a intense conversation with her for the longest time. And I said, you know, I got to have this with you because when she she'll write to me stuff or, you know, write me an email, whatever. Uh, or if, if she's, you know, looking for something else, write me her resume. I don't understand half of it. And I cannot believe the knowledge that she acquired in industry. You know, while making money, you know, going in the lower level positions and moving up to an extremely high level position in the business world with a GED. And so that makes me question to saying, well, wait a minute. If that's happening, you know, what she got in 15 years to me has to. Is is better than getting a doctorate in business, in my opinion. Because, oh yeah, because no, she, that experience because is, because she got yeah. it in the real world, right? And right. not only was her education learning about it, yeah. but it was all the pressure. It was handling the pressure of the real world when she was learning. There was there was no living in a fantasy world business. Right. It was all real. Every single day. And I thought about when I went to, to, 
to college, you know, and because I've been asked this before, what was, you know, you went to college for four years and you paid for it and you worked two jobs. What was the best thing that you learned from college? And it's easy for me and it had nothing to do with college. It was the fact that I was working two jobs and going to college full time and working at the college radio station, organizing my time. Mm-hmm. Organization. Making it work. Making it work. Invaluable. At that young age, invaluable. Well, because it's, it, it really is about developing uh, good habits and yeah. that, that apply to uh, being prepared for, you know, uh, and, and also making a contribution in the workforce. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other thing was the fact that my father being, you know, always the engineer in him. And I'd mentioned earlier because we had talked about banking, you know, and the banking you know, situation in this country right now and how I started in banking. But I had that banking experience, you know, and then I had my grandfather's machine shop was up the street. So I knew about machining. And a few years later, I ended up being a machinist. I worked in banking. I was a machinist, you know, did radio a little bit, uh, you know, the, the whole club DJ thing. But I was good and confident in a v- variety of different things. So I was always willing to try something else. Mm. That was also a huge benefit in my life that had nothing to do with the actual education. So that's why I have questions in my mind. And I'm not saying that you might not have a great engineering school that would blow away four years in industry because you could learn. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. And I'm not saying that there aren't curriculums where you could learn a lot. But the questions now are in my head, especially since I haven't gone to college. I don't think how many years it's been (laughs) in in 46 years. (laughs) And, we'll and just how, say and in how, a number of years, and, and how different <laughs> how different colleges today yeah. compared to what? Because no, nobody would. You think anybody would have put up with the crap that exists on college campuses today? No way. Would have never happened. Well, and, you know there, and and there is something to that. Uh, you know, as as you describe your friend, this is somebody who was hungry, and I I, I mean that in in the way that there was no. There was no other way for that to go. That person had to put themselves into motion and say that I can't be in this place and that I've got to be in a place where I'm going to be secure. My my child or children are going to be secure, and I have to fight for that. That type of hunger retrains the instinct to what it should be. But when you teach kids, eh, somebody will be there for you. Don't worry about it. Then you don't get the, those kids don't have those skills necessary. They just don't. Hey, I mean, her, her choice was poverty. Exactly. Or, or surviving. I'm either here in this place right. or I I'm, work to get yeah. out of it. I'm surviving or I'm not. Yep. In essence. 86690 Red Eye. Coming up, more with Gary McNamara and Eric Harley. It's Red Eye Radio. It's Red Eye Radio. He's Eric Carlin. I'm Gary McNamara, 86690 uh, Red Eye. So you see that headline, Gavin Newsom fails to pass penalty on oil companies, will now try executive action. He couldn't get a deal with the dominant 
Democratic legislature in California mm. to pass on the penalty to oil companies because even Democrats realize when you do that, <laughs> it is <laughs> it is trickle down taxation. Well, it's it's become you know everybody understands that Californians especially the price of gasoline, a fuel, and in in their state is higher than in other states, and they look at it. You're going to pass that along. You're going to pass along another increase to your constituents. Yeah. No. This is Red Eye Radio on Westwood One. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.